0: All right, this is Steve Robinson and Edward Tomich, and we are part of the Main Wire, and we're uh, bringing you an episode of the Main Wire podcast because we just got done taking a tour of the beautiful city of Portland, Maine, where the fentanyl flows freely and the food pantry lines are long. Uh, Edward, your your first impressions of uh, this beautiful city that you now uh, call home. Well, actually, they do a pretty good job
1: keeping the numerous homeless encampments out of the way of where you might typically see them if you were just coming to the main port area in Old Port or by the waterfront to go look at the the tourist shops. I mean, you'll see your your everyday sort of homeless person on the street there. But um, what we saw today at the at the park and ride and and over by Four River Parkway is is really something that I think is not an exaggeration to say that it's. Rapidly becoming a humanitarian crisis of great
0: proportion. Oh, I, I, I think, I think we're already there at the crisis level. But the, I think for me, I, and just to give people some background, we just visited, um, three different, uh, homelessness encampments in, in, in the Portland area. There's one by marginal way that's at the park and ride. And they've just, uh, put up a fence and some concrete barriers there. So they're, I guess, settling in for the long term. It's very much a deliberate strategy to uh, allow a tent city there uh and then there's another uh camp that seems to be getting more attention from the social services side over by um what is it Libbytown uh Four yeah, River the, the- This
1: is the Four River Parkway encampment and that's the one that's been the focus of the the homeless crisis response team in Portland's strategy they've put up needle collectors there um and when we were there today there were numerous nonprofits handing out food um signing people up
0: for housing yeah, that's what they seemed to be saying is they were, they were signing people up for, um, wait lists for housing programs. And that one was a, a little bit harder to see what exactly was going on in the camp. Um, and then there was another one, uh, that was on the Western Prom, which was less of a camp. I, that was, I think that's where the classy, the classy homeless hang out. Yeah. It I mean, it was a yeah. little more spacious. It was like, it was like the suburbs. If the, if Libbytown was right. the urban living, I think Western Prom was the suburbs.
1: I think you're exactly right about that. And, um, I think that their strategy with the Four River Parkway is to get everybody out of there by September 6th, I believe. So, um, Kristen Dow, the, the Portland Director of Health and Human Services, she said that they're going to offer everybody, try to offer everybody in those encampments at the Four River Parkway housing by September 6th. The problem is, is that, as I'm sure many people can imagine, these people don't really want to go into a shelter where they, where they can't do drugs or where there's a stipulation that they, <laughs> they don't want a dry shelter.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, I, I guess, what what struck me from the from the beginning of our adventure today was talking with some business owners because we we there's uh, just if you can if you can envision the scene and we've got a vi- some videos that will come along with this so people can see what's going on. But there's a bunch of retail shops off marginal way, and they're all um, sporting goods stores, home goods stores. I mean, not like relatively high end stuff. And uh, right across the street, there's just a, a, a bank of tents in an open parking lot, um, and there are uh, people just doing drugs out in the open. I mean, at, at 9 o'clock this morning, uh, I watched a guy cook a fentanyl shot and hand it to the girl that he was with, and he had one, and they both spent a little bit of time searching for a spot on their body where they could inject the fentanyl, and then they uh, enjoyed it for the rest of the hour while we were there. Uh, but in talking with the business owners there, what was striking to me was the total lack of any kind of communication from the city or the state. Um, no, no outreach. Uh, I would say a lack of responsiveness when they do have to call law enforcement. Sometimes, you know, if, uh, one of these individuals who is suffering drug addiction, it comes into the store for whatever reason, it takes 15 minutes for a police officer to show up. Mm-hmm. And then they get there and it's, oh, that individual
1: is a known individual you know, there's, there's nothing really we can do. Um, and and as, uh, one of the business owners pointed out the, the encampment, it used to be take up the entire park and ride. Um, and which is
0: like two football fields long.
1: It's extremely long. Yeah. So that they've divided it in half, but the half that they're using is actually right in front of all these retail stores as opposed to the other half, which, which isn't directly facing across from these businesses. So they've crowded all of them onto this one side of the park and ride directly across from these businesses and they say that they they've seen needles on the ground that they're um, defecating in their in their areas so
0: yeah i mean the, i think the the phrase that one gentleman used several times was it's a shit show just a total shit show and yeah that's literally and figuratively they've had they've had uh, no one is listening to their complaints. And I, and I think we we kind of figured that out very quickly when we pulled in there and that one guy was like, you can't park here. You can't park here. And I was like, uh, sir, we're uh, reporters. You, you seem like you own a business here. Can you talk? And he was like, okay, you can park there. Come here. I got to tell you my story. You need to go talk to this guy. You need to go talk to this guy. Uh, but none of them want to be named either because there's a, a big culture of fear amongst business owners, not just that. Uh, if it turns out that they're heard talking negatively about the homeless encampment, that so one of these people is going to throw a brick through their front window. Uh, but they also, I think that there's a, a political fear, uh, a fear of uh, saying something that's politically incorrect, and then maybe your business suffers for whatever reason. But just a, a tremendous culture of fear that I don't think is is helping them tackle the problem at all. Absolutely. And
1: and as far as tackling the problem, it it, it is not a very simple issue. Not a simple issue not. at all. Um, and it's it's very different from the asylum seeker migrant crisis that's going on because um, the migrants and asylum seekers that are here generally don't have drug problems, generally don't have alcohol problems. Generally, they're they're able to sort of stay in these shelters and, and want to stay in those shelters. The people at the Park and Ride, the people at Four River Parkway, even if they're offered multiple times, won't want to do that. Um, and even if they get in there, Giving someone who's addicted to fentanyl, heroin, meth, whatever, four walls is not going to be a solution to the problem.
0: No, it's not a silver bullet. I mean, you know, I, I think housing housing is part of a strategy for uh, dealing with the encampments. But I, I think the big the biggest difference is some some of the people at the encampments from uh, the interviews that I've done with them, from talking with uh, different people in the city of Portland, uh, they view it as a lifestyle. Uh, you know, it's not it's not something where um, uh, you know, they've. Uh, it's not something they necessarily want to leave. Like with the asylum seekers, yes, they're content to stay in the shelter and play by the rules, but they want to improve their lives. Like their their end goal is to get housing, have jobs, raise families. But the people at these camps, it seems more which like, may or may not be just, a
1: legitimate reason to come well, here.
0: Well, yes, of course, no. I mean, they're economic migrants. That's clear. Like we know that they're economic migrants. These asylum claims, most of them are bogus. I mean, that's just the federal numbers testify to that. That's not a comment on. Any, uh, the, the character of any of the asylum seekers, that's just a, a fact that wanting to improve your life is not a legitimate reason to seek asylum in the United States. It doesn't matter whether it's President Trump, President Biden, uh, your asylum claim is going to get rejected. Um, but our immigration system is so broken, that's going to take five years and, you know, we're, we're kind of stuck in a morass of uh, laws that we've written but can't enforce or lack the political will to enforce. Um, but the just that's just to say that there's a difference between this one population that is kind of uh striving and you know to, trying to improve their lives for their families and look if i if i grew up in uh sub-saharan africa and saw an opportunity to come live in maine absolutely i'm going to take it absolutely i'm going to game the immigration system so no judgment there the the comparison i'm making is that the the people on marginal way and at the four river campground they, they seem like they're there for the party I mean, it's they a literally had a, a, had a dartboard. So yes, it was. There was a again. dartboard. It was a dartboard. Um, and and at the marginal way area, there's no sanitation facility whatsoever. No sanitation facility. They're, they're they put some uh, concrete embankments in. and I guess the idea is that people put their trash there, but there's no porter potties. There's no, there's, there's nothing. So I can only imagine what that stretch is going to look like, um, you know, 10 or 20 years from now when they finally clean it up. <laughs> yeah, and it
1: it also makes you wonder more more broadly in terms of these two populations that you have about Governor Janet Mill's plan or her desired plan to bring in what is it, seventy five thousand more more
0: yeah, and that, that, that might not be purely uh, uh, migrants. She may have this pie-in-the-sky idea that uh, 70,000 people are going to move from Texas to Maine and take a 5-7% pay cut. Uh, in, practically speaking, though, if your goal is to import 75,000 workers to fill low-wage jobs, I mean, we can read between the lines. We know where those migrants are coming from. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, in, in some ways they are, t- they are part of the same problem, though, because... Uh, Resources are scarce and the city of Portland is bumping up against that now every bed that's in a shelter every um, you know rehab uh, opportunity appointment that's taken up by um, someone who has entered the country illegally or is seeking asylum for illegitimate reasons uh, that's something that could be used by someone from Bitterford who's right now suffering uh, from drug addiction down on marginal way um, so resources are scarce and uh, the city of Portland is is basically putting to the test the proposition uh, of whether you can operate a, an unlimited welfare state alongside an open border. Yeah, and, and we were just looking
1: at the general assistance statistics earlier today.
0: They're staggering. They're staggering. O- over the last, uh, I guess we, we requested from January 1st, 2019 to June of this year, what is the general uh, assistance expenditure by municipality? And, uh, for those who don't know, general assistance is basically a welfare program administered by the municipal governments. Uh, there's a voucher system. It involves housing, healthcare, but it's, it's a welfare program. And the state picks up generally 70% of whatever the payments are. And the city of, uh, let me see. The, I want to get this right. I think that the total, the total, uh, uh allocation it was like 110 million over that period of time. And the city of Portland is responsible for 80 million of that, which is just like that. I mean, that's the program. That's it. That's the program. Like general assistance in in Maine is um, welfare for people in Portland and, and support services for people in Portland. And even Bangor with maybe a little less than half the population of um, Portland only accounts for like three or four million in general assistance spending. So this is you know very much uh there's Maine and its problems and then there's Portland and its problems. Mm-hmm. And the causes are different and I think that the solutions will probably have to be different uh, different as well. Do you do you
1: think there's any hope for Portland? I mean because I see the city councilors, I see that a lot of them do seem to have a, a general uh genuine compassion for what's happening, um but as we've talked about before, compassion does not always equate to sound policy that actually helps people. A lot of times these policies that are meant to be compassionate actually turn out to be quite harmful to, to a lot of these populations. Do you think that there's that there's some point, because we've talked to business owners here, there, there are people here who still, even though they don't identify as conservative or Republican at all, furthest thing from it, they, as small business owners... See that? Well, this is this is terrible for business. This is terrible for the city. People don't want to come here, visit here, live here. Definitely not. Um, people don't want to move their businesses here. Um, we were just talking about um, Queenie's Castle, I believe, in, in mm-hmm. Deering Oaks Park, that they're moving out because of this Scared situation. Scared away. Scared away. Um, I mean, at some point, does does the city leadership have to sort of listen to the business owners and, and these people with with their concerns and, and do something more than just sort of Clean up one camp, have them move to three different camps, clean up those camps, have them move
0: to other camps. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could see a scenario where, uh, Portland, like, hits rock bottom. Um, you know, much like, a uh, one of these, uh, users that we were witnessing today needs to hit rock bottom before the recovery can begin. I could see the city of Portland having something like that happening, but I think that that's a, a less likely scenario. I, I see the city of Portland as pretty much following in the footsteps of uh San Francisco or New York, just like a little bit further behind the curb um, for whatever reason. Uh maybe the, the the good, brilliant, progressive political ideas hit San Francisco first and we're just kind of catching up on it. Um, but in terms of the the end game as to where this goes, I think you just see more flight from the city. You know I mean that if you're if it's not safe to walk around a city at night, uh which these business owners said their employees are terrified of walking around what were once safe neighborhoods, um, if it, if it's not okay to walk around at night or not, you don't feel okay or safe walking around at night, then you lose one of the key benefits of a city, which is this walkable community, the spontaneous interactions that happen when you're walking down a street, uh, happening on a new restaurant. Uh, and so as the benefits of the city diminish, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the downsides of cities become more apparent, whether it's the uh, the smell, the overcrowding the high prices, and it makes it more attractive to move out into the country uh, and if their customers flee, then the businesses suffer, so you get into this kind of downward spiral uh, because certainly I, I don't see i don't see a a change a paradigm shift in the way the city thinks about enforcement coming
1: yeah, and that's the other aspect of this is the I believe we reported on this with the the Sanford needle dispensary shutting yes. down. How there's this memo from the attorney general's office? How they're not supposed to prosecute um, unhoused individuals um, Mm -hmm. for disturbing the peace, you know, public nudity, you know, urinating in public, these sorts of things, drinking in public, um, disorderly conduct, that sort of thing. These are things which which cops are now hamstrung from being able to do entirely. And as you point out, when you have business owners and employees saying they're living in fear because of those policies. At what point is that just like dereliction of duty by the state prosecutors? And and I mean, because I don't really blame police if these things are top down from their higher ups. They're saying, no, you can't arrest these people. You can't.
0: Yeah. And I mean, if, if, the, if the if the you know, if the prosecutor has said uh, in some communities, it's explicit where a, a U.S. attorney or a district attorney says, look, we're, we're just not prosecuting these things. Um, but if you, as a cop, know that someone's not going to get charged uh, or prosecuted for disorderly conduct, well, are, are, why are you going to waste your time arresting somebody on disorderly conduct? Um, so I think what we have is prosecu- prosecutorial discretion has been um, abused, used, or abused, or both, in such a broad degree that these DAs are effectively unwriting some of our laws.
1: Right, and if we think about it, they're they're concerned about the rights of the. Homeless people. They're saying, okay, well, this is going to make it worse if we incarcerate them, if we, if we stigmatize their, their living situation by, you know, criminalizing not having a home, that sort of thing. But at some point there has to be a recognition of the rights of the, the other people that are law abiding citizens going about their business and have to live in fear or they have to hide their kids away from looking at whatever,
0: whatever's happening. I mean, we saw kids outside the yeah. parking ride. Yeah, I mean, there were like six or seven year old kids riding through the parking lot, uh, looking at the tents and watching people defecate and use drugs in the open. Uh, I imagine that's a that's a heck of an experience for them. There were a lot of kids there actually, uh, and and there's there's used needles all over the ground in and around the businesses. The uh, business owners told us they've caught people, um, you know, trying to sneak into their business. Apparently, there's there's a bank right there, um, so good luck. Withdrawing making an atm withdrawal there they've had to upgrade the security for uh the cash drop offs that do come in and they have had to change their walk-up atm so it'll set an alarm off if you're in that little space for longer than six minutes and uh apparently there were people sleeping in there people doing all kinds of uh ungodly things in that atm room um and you know what that all creates costs that are eventually passed on to the consumer. This is kind of a hidden a hidden tax that everyone's paying to absorb those costs. Uh, but you mentioned the you know eventually the the rights of people to kind of have the laws enforced and and to exist in ordered liberty. But there's also this this debate over what exactly is comp- compassionate because is it compassionate to move them around from public space to public space? And just kind of cordon them off, and have people walk by them on their way to Trader Joe's, pretending like they don't see them. Yeah. Is it compassionate it's, to just like go toss a bag of Narcan at them once a month? And it's, it's compassionate in the sense that you're affirming their
1: lifestyle and saying it's okay to yeah. live out on the street and do drugs and not have a job, not you know, to endanger other people around you. They're saying it, it, it's compassionate in the sense of that they are. It's a homeless affirming care that they're doing. (laughs) That's that's
0: exactly what it is. They're affirming the lifestyle that these people have chosen to live. And I mean, I don't think you can disagree with that when they're, when they're providing them, like all of the needles that are being put out into the community come from the government through, through the needle exchange programs, which by the way, aren't needle exchange programs anymore because during COVID they lifted the requirement that you have to turn in needles in order to receive needles. So we're just putting new needles out into the community and they're Everywhere. They're all over the road and, and these business owners don't want to pick them up and they'll call, you know, the police and the police don't want to pick them up because it's an obvious risk of a a bloodborne illness. Uh, Who knows what they're contaminated with. So in addition to being a humanitarian crisis, we've now got like a biohazard crisis that's kind of blossoming out from where these people are living. It's a, um, you know, as you said earlier, it's, it's a intractable problem, but whatever the heck they're doing now, is not working. Yeah. You know, I mean, $80 million in general assistance spending over the last four years to try and fix this problem. And that doesn't even include all of the Medicaid spending for, uh, treatment doesn't include the federal emergency rental assistance program that was paying for, uh, asylum seekers and residents to, to have housing during the pandemic lockdowns. Um, whatever they're doing, they've been throwing a lot of money at it and it's, it's not just not working and there doesn't seem to be a lot of energy to come up with um innovative ideas like enforcement. No, a, a lot of the solutions seem like band-aid solutions. It's like, okay, there's needles
1: all over the ground, well let's put in a post office box sized needle yeah, sharps sharp container. container. Yeah. Um they're defecating on the street, okay, porta potty. It's it's like, okay, well, I mean, you can't just um uh, put these band-aid solutions on the problem without actually trying to think of ways to more systematically address the issue and I know it is an extremely complex problem. I mean, these people don't want to stop doing what they're doing. I mean, they have a dartboard set up. They seem perfectly content. And and as some of the business owners said, it, it's it's actually quite hard if you spend time there to feel sympathy for a lot of these people because it it is a horrible yeah. situation. But it, it's hard to to see them doing anything to help themselves. And. That's a difficult thing to to reckon with, and and at some point I think if people aren't willing to help themselves, there has to be a concerted effort from the from the state and city to to help those people.
0: I, I did not see a Portland police officer today. Neither did I. I did not see anyone from the main state police. I didn't see anyone from the main drug enforcement agency at the marginal way campsite. I think I saw one truck from the city of Portland drive by. Um uh, but there was no one from social services, there was no one um and we saw one guy with a walkie-talkie came in and got somebody out of a tent. I'm not sure what that situation was, uh, but saw no no outreach effort or anything. And no no effort to protect the business owners and their customers from this government approved um Millsville.
1: Mm-hmm. And the, and the other aspect of this is fentanyl. And these drugs and how they're even getting up here, how they're being trafficked, how they're coming across the border. I mean, it's similar to the asylum seeker migrant crisis. I mean, a lot of this stuff is the result of very bad federal policy that is allowing drugs to actually flow into our country and come up through Massachusetts and New Hampshire.
0: Yeah. And you see, uh, even in Massachusetts where Maura Healy said, um, you know, she's declaring a, a government emergency, a state emergency to deal with their migrant crisis. But then she said, "And I just want to encourage everybody to continue to be welcoming, to right. migrants. right?
1: Like I love the culture in Massachusetts yeah. of being an accepting place, and I urge if that's your, do it. You know, it's
0: it's where you have to give you have to give um, Eric, uh, I mean, uh, was it, uh Eric Adams in New York." You have to you have to give him credit because he's the one who came out and said, "Yeah, we're doing everything we can to take care of these people, but stop, no more." Like, yeah, we can't. I think he's
1: we he's can't fully realized he was incorrect. Yes. about being yes. a sanctuary city.
0: And I, I, think. And I, I think you can yeah. be you can be open minded and and liberal and tolerant, but also understand that there are benefits to an orderly migration system. There are benefits to a controlled asylum situation, because you don't end up with. Surprise, you've got to open up the Portland Expo for the second time in four years and people are going to live stacked on top of each other like sardines. And then, oh, we're going to hit this deadline where everyone has to move and we don't even know what the solution is going to be a week from now. Uh, but I don't think that, I don't think that particularly left-wing people in the state of Maine have figured out that there's, there's like a middle ground between the borders have to be open. Everyone can and should come. Portland is going to solve poverty. In the entire world, on the one hand, and uh, you're a uh, white supremacist racist, on the other hand. They don't see a middle ground there. They don't see like a centrist, like common sense perspective that is respectful of the residents who are here, and ultimately more compassionate for migrants who do settle here.
1: Yeah, I think I think there is a, a middle ground to be found here in terms of, I mean, be- because I, I I don't think that you can have fully open borders and also be such a magnet. In terms of welfare and, and benefits that you provide because, I mean, what we saw with, um, say the Sanford situation a few months back was you had people telling the migrants to go to another place because, oh, there's going to be benefits for you. Oh, there's going to be better housing. You're going to find was a, a better yeah, hotel. Was
0: a, a perfect example of liberal compassion.
1: Exactly. And it, what does it result in? It results in a hundred people standing outside the post office. They can't speak English. They have no food, no water. I mean, this is, that was like a a micro example of of the macro problem, which is out of compassion where there's too many people coming here. And I think, I think to her credit, uh, Portland Mayor Kate Snyder, um, in a recent interview on, on WGAN, uh, said like, yeah, we need help. This is, this is intractable. Like this, we obviously need to have some sort of federal change Mm -hmm. that, that would help us here. The problem is, is, there's also this strain from Eric Adams in New York, from Warhealy, Massachusetts, and, and from the Portland City officials here that, oh, if only we got the federal work requirement got you know gotten rid of, then everything would be fine. If only, you know, we had more federal reimbursement for our state and, and local expenditures, then everything would be fine. It's never a question of actually, well, maybe we shouldn't be taking in thousands and thousands. Yeah, all at once yeah. without without those in place already.
0: And that and that argument, too, is such a canard because after you've been here for six months, having applied for asylum, you're eligible for a work permit. Uh, these people can get Social Security numbers. They are they're eligible to work. Um, so the vast majority of asylum seekers or migrants here in the state of Maine can already work. There's no federal prohibition on them working. So if that was going to somehow be the key that unlocked this problem, we'd know by now, both in terms of our work workforce shortage and their ability to provide for their own well-being. We, we would know by now because they all can work. Um, it's Um The thing is that there are other impediments to not being able to enter the workforce, like not speaking English, having a certain set of skills, having housing, having a car. I mean, these people who are saying... Oh, we just need to get rid of this federal requirement. It's like, it's typical government thinking, like, ooh, this one little thing, this one little rule change will fix the problem. It's like, well, have you ever tried to get a job in a foreign country that you just arrived in when you don't have housing and you don't have a car and you've got two little kids and you're living in a shelter? Because that seems to me like the federal prohibition would be the least of your concerns for, in the short term. Maybe, uh, you know, if the prohibition was, they can't work for a year or two years. I would buy into it a little bit more, but six months seems like a reasonable uh, amount of time to, uh, I guess, serve as a disincentive for the economic migration to occur. Yeah, um, But it, it might not even matter, really, because the economic incentive is there with general assistance programs. Uh, you know, Senator Brakey tried to um, uh, make some reforms for GA so that you don't, you know, cross the bridge into Maine and immediately become eligible, mm-hmm. actually extending all these some of those work requirements. Yes. Well, he wanted to get rid of the, the, uh, the federal rule as well, but adding work requirements to the, the pure welfare benefits, right. but like basically making it so it's a less of attractive, uh, it's less attractive financially to come to Maine and immediately get on benefits, which I mean, most, most liberals, most Democrats in this state won't even acknowledge that that's a factor. Like, they, they, they don't even want to have the conversation. They just do not believe that it's true. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, they just do not want to believe that human nature exists and would function like that, which is like, again, it's no knock on the migrants. Like, if you know there's going to be someplace where you're going to be able to feed your family and it's a government benefit or some guy's just passing out cash, who cares? You're going to go there. It right. just it just makes sense just based simple on human incentives, nature. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also think an interesting aspect of this that we kind of got a little insight into talking with some of the business owners is this uh, this buck passing that's going on between the city of Portland and the state government. Because right. the camp was initially uh, – the biggest of the camps was initially between the Trader Joe's and the, the um, Whole Foods. And of course, that's a problem because these, you know, if you're if you're living on Munjoy Hill in your 1.5 million dollar house and you're going to Whole Foods, right. you guess some that's, sushi that's
1: the last thing you want to see when you're drinking your kombucha. Yeah. I mean,
0: you don't have to step over needles yeah. I and mean, the smell. You don't you don't want to see that. They got to clean that up. So they they the city broke up the camp, moved them away, and then it seems to me that there was a wink, wink, nod, nod situation where the cops were like, "Well, if you go over and set up in this area, which happens to be Department of Transportation state land." Um, then you know we w- we won't bug you, and so that's what happened. And they went and they set up on the Marginal Way parking ride. And then one of the, I don't I haven't been able to confirm this is true. We'll have to call Janet and ask. Uh, but one of the business owners said that uh, the camp the 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 change to the Marginal Way camp only happened after Governor Mills was at an event in South Portland or Portland. And had to drive through and realize that as you pass through one of the main, like big, the biggest arteries in Portland, what you were confronted with was a massive homelessness campaign. It is
1: right off the exit on on 295. It is, it is right there. It's the first thing you see. And and the other thing is, is this bus stop. Oh, yes. Right in front of this encampment. This is a a Greyhound bus stop and it also, it runs a shuttle from that park and ride to um, the dock area in Portland. So a lot of tourists are there.
0: Yes. So, so according to the the businessman's version of the story, the, uh, the park and ride gets cut, basically cut in half and moved and shifted because the governor didn't like the optics of people going through the biggest city, the, the crown crown jewel of Maine and seeing, uh, Millsville, these, these <laughs> <Yeah>. little, <laughs> Millsville. little communities yep. that she's given, given life to. And, uh, um, when they moved it, they moved it not uh, they moved it not into the section of the park and ride that wasn't close to the businesses, but to the section that was close to the businesses, and also in front of it is what is now the Greyhound bus stop, because the Greyhound bus stop that used to be between Hadlock and Main Health has been converted into a food pantry. Yeah, which had a long line out, outside it did, of it, it this did, morning. It did have a long line, and it's, and it's very close to the um, the expo, so you would expect it to have a, a fairly long line. Um, but the, the interesting thing with the Greyhound bus stop is that now if a tourist is taking the bus to Portland, the first thing that they see is like a half-empty park-and-ride and a tent city. And it's created some problems for the business owners because the, they are, are all like walking over into their parking lot saying, can we, take, can we use your bathroom? Because the, the bus station is not a – it's a stop. It's not a station. There's no facilities or anything like that. It's just a station. It's a point where they've decided to start dropping people off. Um, and so now all of those people are coming into the businesses on that little stretch and saying, um, you know, can we use your bathroom? Can I get directions? Can I plug my, my cell phone in? Can I charge my cell yeah, phone? They're saying they don't want to even wait out there because there's, like yeah, just, of- Hey, can I, can I just wait in yeah. here? It feels like it's safer if I wait in here. Yeah. Uh, and then I think another aspect of the costs that were being imposed on these guys, um, you know, there's some of them wanted to, want to have outdoor displays. A very, very common thing for businesses. You have an outdoor display. It signals, hey, we're open. We're open for business. Somebody sees something they like, they come in, and now they can't do that. And they have to be careful when they're loading cargo, uh, you know, uh, bringing, um, bringing in goods that have been delivered. Uh, they've all had to install security systems. The bank is hiring a, a private security guard to come in and basically look out. I don't know if it's going to be 24 7 or what it is. Uh, but there's, there's, there's so many unseen costs in addition to the costs that we can see. Through public record requests and in the uh, you know the budgets for these cities, yeah, and I mean just just from a general outside
1: perspective, regardless of any policy knowledge, if you were someone who was visiting Portland for the first time, you decided let's say you live in DC, you took a Greyhound bus up to Portland because you heard of all the great restaurants. So you you drive there, you're dropped off. The first thing you see is about fifty tents, people shooting up fentanyl, and then. You get on the shuttle to go to the dock area, and you drive by a food pantry food lines where there there's like thirty thirty five people waiting to get
0: handed bread. It's like it's third. This world. is an
1: American city.
0: Yeah, it's it's third world. Like I the the kind of I uh, visited Mexico City recently. The kind of poverty I see in Portland and the lack of safety I feel in Portland, it, I never felt in Mexico City. Never. Uh, it's jarring. I mean we like we were at we were at the uh so the four at the Four River encampment. There are there's a table, they're passing out water, snacks and they've got a bunch of people standing around from Spurwink and the Portland Housing Authority and uh you know a, a panoply of left-wing nonprofits that I'm sure are, you know, really well run and really committed to solving this problem. Uh, Committed uh, <laughs> to something. I'm not sure what they're committed to. Um, but, you know, they've got stacks and stacks of paper to try to fill out these applications. Uh, I mean, we were only there for 15, 25 minutes, but I didn't see anybody filling out applications for housing. No. You know, it was the middle of the day. I saw a bunch of people standing around, people who were obviously drugged out of their minds. Uh, there's one guy, uh, and I I hate to question your situational awareness, Edward, but there was one guy who was right in front of us wagging around a huge prison shank, and he I'm was too like,
1: trusting. "I'm trusting. I'm, <laughs> I'm from a suburb in
0: Massachusetts. We don't see that type of behavior often." This, this guy's like shirtless and covered in tattoos, and he's like trying to figure out a way to tuck his prison shank into the water bottle carrier on his bike, uh, and, and all the. All the social workers or whomever seem to be totally oblivious to this. There's no police officer down there with these individuals. I don't know whether it's a, a, a naivete or um, courage on their part to just jump into that and not, and not worry about it. But they seemed very nonchalant about the entire situation. And the, the thing that I also thought was interesting was they told us this was the first day that they'd been there.
1: Yeah. At least the the housing applications. The, the people that were there ostensibly yeah. on behalf of the city. Um, because they told us to go talk to Jessica Grondin if we wanted to find any more information.
0: Yeah. They said that was their first time there, um, and and they, and they had no plans to go to any of the other encampments. Apparently, I don't know. I mean, they could just be. I don't want to throw them under the bus. They, you know, they they could. I'm sure they're just doing their jobs. Um, and there's a lot of political pressure going on, but uh, it seems kind of revealing that that's the first time there's been an attempt to go down there into that area. Which by the way is, is right in front of a bunch of low income public housing. Um, so the people who are already settled and have found housing and are trying to build a family or improve their lives now have to deal with a, a very seedy, sketchy homelessness encampment basically in their dooryard, which do, again, doesn't seem like compassion to me. No you know like you know, we've we've resettled some asylee families into public housing in that area and then we allow an open air drug market right in their front yard doesn't seem like a, a compassionate way doesn't seem uh like an inclusive philosophy to me right not at all but again i i don't know i don't know exactly i don't know exactly what you do but there seems to be an appetite amongst the uh business owners for a radical rethinking of the approach to it uh, and all of them, all of them, are um, I think they're being ignored by the the city of Portland and the the state government as well. And I I haven't seen anything from the state government that would lead me to believe that they're they have any interest in in taking care of this problem. Whether it's the asylum seekers who all they've done is kick the can down the road. They'll pass a spending bill for housing. They'll pass you know that's going to run out. There's a crisis. They pass another bill, more money. That runs out, they pass another bill. You know, it's an endless cycle that we're on now. And then there's this idea about bringing asylum seekers up to unity. And I mean, we could talk a little bit about that plan. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, I think you wrote the story about how Unity basically came out and said, "Yeah, we can do this, but we're going to need to get paid." like there's right. gonna there's gonna be need to be some money here if the asylum seekers are gonna come up to unity college uh which is a uh i guess an environmental college in Hancock county yep that really they're in a pickle and a pickle because they all most of their students are remote now so they've got dorms that they're not yeah, using they' they've, they've so,
1: transitioned into mostly online learning so they have all these dorms at this campus um and their idea is okay well if if we have asylum seekers maybe we'll get some sort of Payment for that from from the government.
0: Exactly, I'm sure they're not getting housing if the dormitories are sitting empty, uh, and so we, we wrote a story that said you know Unity College says that this won't happen without taxpayer money, and I think one of them one of the PR guys called you or something. Yeah, basically they said
1: well it it didn't have to be taxpayer money we if we just said money it could come from any number of
0: different sources. And it's okay. Well, name them. I mean, like list them. Where else is this money yeah, going to yeah. come uh, from? George In Soros. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> and you know, it's <laughs> exactly. like the, the taxpayer money never turned up and then no other money turned up. Uh, so the original reporting holds up well. Um, but th- that was an idea that I think the, uh, the Mills administration was actually considering. I don't know how serious they were about it. Uh, but then to go and come up with this idea that you're going to create the office of new Americans and this is going to be designed to, Bring in seventy-five thousand new laborers, and, and even if they're not explicitly all migrants, like I mean, they're they're what you have just did was basically put up a big sign and say like, "Hey, we've got jobs. Like, we w- we want more people. uh We want to continue this. Yeah. We we, we want to get this to increase." And there there
1: might very well be be a workforce. Shortage in Maine, there's an aging population. All of that might be true, but there's also shortages in other areas, in housing, in, yeah. in these resource programs. I mean, Portland and cities like Sanford have been stretched so thin on these general assistance programs that, I mean, it, it, it's it's a fine motive, say, from an economic perspective to say, okay, we want to fill up all these jobs for these businesses here um, and, and increase the the state GDP. Um But at some point, I mean, as, even as a liberal, as a progressive, there must be something you value more than the the state GDP in terms of actually treating these people humanely. Because if, if they're not, if we don't have the resources as a state to take care of those people when they come here, what are we really doing? We're, we're forcing them here to live under terrible conditions and then telling them to go work a, a minimum, no skill job. I mean, that doesn't seem compassionate at all.
0: Or even just bringing them here. And you know they can fill a job, but then they're going to pay seventy percent of their income in rent because of the lack of supply has driven prices up. You know, and, right. and then that also undermines their quality of living. But you're right that it's odd. Governor Mills, in some ways, is just like a classic uh, chamber of commerce Republican. Like her approach to. Migration is very much like well we somebody's gonna p- pick them potatoes you know my yeah. mom <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm yeah. not gonna be it's out like there. I'm that, a like that famous clip on potatoes. the
1: view it's like who's gonna clean my
0: toilet yeah. like that really betrays the yeah I was like there's some there's some uh, some very wealthy people in Rockland who need au pairs. like <laughs> who do you expect to do that you know um, but it, it is very much a I guess a like a utilitarian um, approach to immigration and and there are. There are shortages in other aspects as well. It's not just the housing. Um, you know, we uh, did a story yesterday about um, the, the the state of our healthcare economy, and the healthcare in Maine as a business is huge. Like everybody has some. Everybody here has somebody in their family who works in a hospital. Probably multiple people who work in a hospital because it's just an old state, and um, it's just one of the biggest parts of our economy. It's probably like I don't know a quarter or a third of our economy. And I was looking at the statistics for the decline in healthcare jobs at nursing homes and hospitals and various other medical offices, including drug rehabilitation. And the change from 2019 to 2022 is just jaw dropping. It just falls off the map. Like the, the sharpest decline in these sectors that the state has ever experienced by like a factor of 10. There's no, there's not even a comparison. And I think a lot of that is, is COVID and the way the, that upended things and, Changes to our um, uh, society as a result of the government lockdowns, but a lot of it's also people quitting because of the mandate that healthcare workers have vaccines. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a big part of it too. And so I think we we as a people made several decisions through our political leaders that have really undermined our healthcare system. At the same time, we're the oldest state in the union, and more and more people are going to be needing health care, and then we're going to bring a population of people here who are also going to need health care without the, uh, I guess, the requisite infrastructure for that. It seems like there's a, a lot of scarcity issues that aren't being reconciled with. Yeah. And at the same time, the focus is on building wind turbines and solar panels because Janet thinks she can change the weather. <laughs>